Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, January 5th, 2011, and our special guest is Scott McLeod. Scott, this is really fun for me. I always enjoy talking to you, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, nice to be here. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for being here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you go ahead and turn your mic off just for a minute while I do a couple of introductory pieces. The Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project. That's at web20labs.com. It's also sponsored by Blackboard Collaborate. They provide the platform for this, and I do work part-time for Blackboard. I put a new link on the slide. You'll notice that uh, down at the bottom is the wecollaborate.com website, which is a new social network for users of Blackboard Collaborate. Uh, many of you know that Learn Central was shut down at the end of December, and this is a replacement site for those who are interested in connecting with each other around the use of Blackboard Collaborate. Uh, we announced this week a rebranding of our ISTE events. So uh, many of you have known about EduBloggerCon, uh, which was started five years ago. And because it's no longer just about blogging, I've rebranded it Social EdCon. And if you go to ISTE Unplugged, now you can see all of the sort of unconference activities around the ISTE conference. Uh, Saturday is EduBloggerCon. Uh, Saturday night, we're going to do something called Ed Incubator, which is a chance for, for small startups to get uh, a little bit of an audience with educators. Uh, then we're going to have a Global Education Summit on Sunday. All of these things are free. Um, Monday, uh, the Bloggers Cafe starts, and it runs through the three days of the conference as well. Uh, what used to be called is the Unplugged, which was the live streaming of sessions where anybody could sign up. We like, to, we like to smilingly say it's the Salon de Refuse. If you didn't get accepted at ISTE, you can still present. That's now being re, being rebranded as ISTE Live, so we can use the ISTE Unplugged name for the whole conference time. Uh, a lot of other really fun things that we hope that we'll be able to announce about that. But please do consider coming to ISTE. It's a ton of fun, and, uh, and, and, we, and we're really appreciative of all that the conference organizers do to allow us to have these activities. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, I talk to Ian Jukes and Mitch Perlstein. Many people probably don't know Mitch Perlstein, but he's written a book about the impact of family on education, kind of the elephant in the room book, which I'm, I think is going to be very interesting. Cheryl Nussbaum Beach comes on to talk about her new book, The Connected Educator, Henry Eyring, on his book with Clayton Christensen called The Innovative University. Lee Crockett on Literacy is Not Enough, Cable Green on the Obviousness of Open Policy. David Lurcher comes back on the show to talk about learning commons and personal learning environments. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this panel on personal learning profiles. I think that will come up in tonight's show a little too. Lorette Lynn, who's the unplugged mom, is going to come on and talk about alternate education. Alan Blankstein, Khalid Smith, this is new. He's, going, he's uh, directing the Startup Weekend EDU program. He's going to come on and talk about that. Jane Hart on social learning. Ruth Sueli on opensource.com. Kathy Davidson on her new book. Alec Koros. And then Howard Rangold's got a new book coming out called NetSmart, and he's coming on the show uh, in April. So hopefully there's something there that is appealing to you. If you've missed any shows, they are all recorded and full Illuminate version and uh, Illuminate Blackboard Collaborate versions and MP3. Uh, if you missed the Blue Valley Caps show, this is really worth watching. This is a partnership between industry and education. Um, and it uh, was a great show with some really terrific students who blew me away. 
uh, Lisa Nielsen, the Innovative Educator, Malia Dicker on Reschooling Yourself, Tasha Bergson Michelson from Google. Anyway, lots and lots recorded. Hopefully, hopefully again, there's something that will be of value to you. So now is your chance to tell us where you're participating from. I'm going to give you whiteboard privileges, which means to the left of your map now you should see some icons. You're looking for the star. Double click it and then click on the map. Maybe give us a shout out and let us know where you're listening from, the time, the temperature. I am in Park City, Utah on something of a sabbatical year and it is desperately warm here. All of the snow is melting. Uh, probably the driest December in decades in Utah. Uh, I felt sorry for all the people who came to vacation here over the holidays and didn't really get great snow. Uh, and the forecast doesn't look like we're going to get much snow in the next 10 days at least. I know that others are experiencing that, but some are getting snowstorms in the south, I think. Looks like Australia. Bill, that must be you in the Philippines. Wherever you're from, we sure appreciate your being here. Thanks for participating and thanks for listening to the recording if that's what you're doing. So Scott, um, this is really fun for me. You and I get to connect at least once a year, uh, typically at ISTE, and to talk to each other. Um, you're always one of the kindest people I know and I really appreciate that about you. Um, I'm going to put up a couple of links here, one of which is this is your blog. So I'm going to do a little bit of a web tour here and you're going to see Scott's blog come up. Dangerously irre irrelevant. Scott, are you dangerously irrelevant? Can you turn oh, that back on? Yeah, that's probably a good phrase for me in many ways. <laughs> I'm hoping to actually work my way to that point, right, where all the stuff that I talk about will become dangerously irrelevant. I don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. Well, there was a sort of a secondary meaning to that for me as I have thought about especially what universities are going through right now and just the question of the relevancy of traditional formal education. So hopefully we'll get to that a little tonight. Uh, also I'm going to put up a link here to this amazing site. I don't know what you built this site in but I really loved it. Let's see if it pulls up for us. Um, that's just the WordPress template um, that I tracked down somewhere that's meant to be for personal profiles. So. Nothing too fancy there. Just plug it in. Yeah, I really loved it. So that's a template for personal profiles. Oh, good. Well, we're going to talk about that as well, I hope, because that's in my list of questions for you. Okay, so tell us a little bit about, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about the Did You Know Shift Happens video. Um, sure. So uh, Shift Happens was sort of the serendipitous thing that happened to me. Um, you know, Carl Fish was the originator of that video at his high school in Colorado and I had just started blogging and somehow ran across it and realized that it would be a really good thing to use with school administrators that I worked with. But I needed to uh, make some tweaks to it. It needed to be cleaned up a little bit and, and made shorter and so I contacted Carl and asked for his permission and of course out of the kindness of his heart he said yes. So I did those things and then posted it on my very young and new blog and my version was the one that went viral. So um, Carl's has gotten a little bit of play but mine was the one that really did the big splash. Um, so ever since then we've just sort of taken off. People have seen the original version. Uh, we heard from Explain, the graphic design company that said we love this so much we're going to donate our effort for version 2. Um, they also helped us with version 4 and version 5. Um, it's now been seen by 40 million people online. Who knows how many people face to face. 
it's been a phenomenon, and you know, I just feel lucky that it happened to me. So, what's the basic message of the video? Um, the basic message of the video has shifted a little bit over time, but I think sort of a constant theme is just sort of the rapid pace of technology, and you know, it sort of forces people to think about, wow, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening really fast, and sometimes I think in our day to day. Uh, work and living that we don't give much thought to sort of the larger impact of some of the stuff that's happening. And I think that's really maybe why it's resonated with so many people as it seems to encapsulate in just a few short minutes some of these really big changes that are happening around us. So for those of us who've sort of been watching technology and education, there was a long period of time. I remember setting up uh, Apple IIEs, I think, in, you know, maybe way back in 1983 for an event and it was a really big deal and we all expected the personal computer to really dramatically change what was taking place in education. So if we, if we think about technology and education, I, I want to propose that there are three ways of thinking about it and I want your take on this. So one would be that the technology helps us to do what we're currently doing better and faster. Another would be the technology opens the doors to sort of altering what we're doing and rethinking pedagogies and going maybe reconsidering some progressive or participative pedagogies that uh, haven't been in the forefront. And the third would be that technology is going to radically alter how we think about teaching and learning. Where do you fall in that scale? Um, all three, uh, simultaneously. <laughs> um, I think that we see a lot of replicative uses of technology as people who are still relative novices in K-12 and higher education introduce themselves to these tools and try to figure out what they mean. I think others are really trying to push the boundaries and see where we're going. Um, and I think, you know, I don't remember who said it now, you probably do, uh, but they said that the technology doesn't really get interesting until it's used by the mass majority of people and then we see where it's really going to go. Um, so I think right now we're still on the front end of a lot of this. Um, I think that we're getting new capabilities and new affordances every single day and who knows what we're going to end up doing with all those 10, 15 years from now. We just have no idea. So it feels as though we're also experiencing kind of a, a dramatic shift away from institutional power. How important is that for teaching and learning to take this into account? And, and what do you think, uh, what, what kind of a message do you give in this area to people who are used to sort of, uh, traditional ways of doing things? Um, I, I try to send a fairly consistent message to school leaders and whatever faculty I get to work with that we need to start being a little more proactive about things. Um, I think that when you look at the progress curves of various technologies, almost all of them are following exponential curves, which means that they lay very low on the radar for a long period of time. And they're you know, doubling and tripling every year or two, and we just don't see it until all of a sudden, by the time it hits the threshold of visibility, it's sort of too late to react to it because we're already hitting the knee of the curve. Um, so what I try to help uh, educators understand is that, for example, you might be paying a lot of attention to online learning right now because it's only one or two percent of all classes taken, but it's consistently doubling every, you know, year and a half, two years. And at the pace it's going, and this is no sign of slowing down, um, by the time you start reacting to it, it's pretty much going to be too late to react to it. So I think that also applies to the credentialing aspect of schools and universities. I think that we're seeing a lot of alternative credentialing mechanisms starting to arise. The Mozilla Badges project might be one of the most visible of those, where we take the idea maybe from computer science, where 
the world of computer science has, divine, has, has defined various sets of competencies, right? Uh, here's what it takes to be C++ certified, for example. And then the field really doesn't care that much where you get your knowledge. You could be self-taught, you could buy a book, you could take a university course, you know, whatever. Um, you know, you can get some information online, but whenever you think you're ready and competent, you do whatever assessment it takes or whatever, and then you get the certification, and then you go out on the job market and say, I'm C++ certified, and so on. We're seeing a lot of those types of credentialing and certification efforts starting to filter the way into other industries and other endeavors. I've probably talked with half a dozen school leadership people just in the last year who are working on principal and superintendent preparation mechanisms where, you know, they're going to provide more informal professional development and, and learning experiences and states are starting to look at those as alter, alternate credentialing exercises and they're going to completely bypass the universities altogether. Because I think ultimately the state may not care that much where you get your credential from as long as you have the necessary competencies. And those, don't those don't have to come from universities. Uh, per se anymore. And I think trying to get complacent faculty to start to wake up to that and say, like, right now, that's not big. But it's growing, it's burgeoning, and it's on its way. And you better start thinking about it now so you have time to adjust and figure out what your role is in that new environment. If you wait until it's visible and big, and you know, you're not following the money where it's being invested now, where the time and attention is going, it, you, we will be in the need of the curve and it will be too late. So Mark Sermon from Mozilla came on the show and described the, you know, the Badges project. And I had kind of a, a mixed reaction to it. In part, I felt like uh, you know, one potential pitfall to the program is it's, it's another sort of systematic, bureaucratic way of somebody else being in charge. And um, have, did, have you had that reaction at all? And is um, the idea that you're sort of jumping through somebody else's hoops instead of a university's hoops um, really represent that much of a change? Uh, I, I think it does, in the sense that um, you know, as, as many of us education technology advocates talk about, um, we now have the ability to display what we can do ourselves. We don't have to rely on a proxy of a diploma or an external certificate or whatever. If we have those credentialing mechanisms, you know, we can do that, surely. But a lot of us are sort of, you know, writing and blogging and photographing and videoing ourselves into existence. And, you know, if I was a graphic designer, for example, who had the kind of presence that I have in the education technology arena, and I was applying for a graphic design job, I surely could just send somebody to my portfolio, right, and said, I may or may not have a graphic design degree, I may not have a formal credential, but you can see my work directly. And you can have testimonies, testimonials from others and so on. I can just throw it all up there on my, on my website. And do I, in that kind of environment, the importance of the formal credential may be less, and I think will be less, than it is now. Um, so the formal credentialing mechanisms, the universities and the other programs that certify people and say you're qualified, right? But, you know, if I have to really choose between two people and one of them all they can say is, look, I'm, I'm listing a diploma on my paper and I'm going to come interview and somebody else has a body of work that's embedded on a website or some kind of online personal profile where I can see how they think, I can see what they do, and, and I can interact with that person directly, you know, I'm probably going to pick the second one. So I feel like you made my argument for me, which is, you know, you don't have any badges on your site. And is this idea of sort of keeping track of all of the badging and who's got authority to issue a badge and the like, just another kind of bureaucratic system. 
I have the same issue with student portfolios, which is we often think about student portfolios as being a system created by the adults that the students then follow. And, and my inclination would be teach the students how to build a website, and that is their portfolio. I think that's possible. I think we also are always going to have to always recognize that a lot of people may never have a robust online presence do degrees and certificates and badges and whatever help you know certify and show us what some of those people can do? Absolutely. So there's probably always going to be a role for that, right? And even those of us who have robust online presences, we still like badges and you know little shields and icons and recognitions from others that we're doing good work. We put them in our sidebars and we put them at the top and bottom of our blogs and whatever. So there's always going to be some room for that. I actually dropped my connection, so I missed your answer, but I'm sure it was profound, and we'll move on. So anybody, anybody have any questions as a follow-up, you can put them in the chat. Um, so the, the sort of the rapid pace of change you've described sounds very much like the Clayton Christensen disruption model, and the, in that disruption model, the uh, kind of the the edges go through an evolution. They actually sort of hone products to a place where they're really valuable by starting with those who aren't served. But they typically displace the core rather than being adopted by the core. So are we going to see that, do you think, in education? Or can institutions respond fast enough to stay uh, in their current roles? Or will they want so badly to stay in their current roles that they actually sort of legislate themselves into staying in that position? Uh, both, like any of the telecoms and any of the entertainment companies and anybody else who's fighting to retain a foothold in this new information environment, they're going to fight tooth and nail to remain to retain dominant presence, right, and to retain market share and revenue share and so on. So, you know, the major entities aren't going to go anywhere soon. Um, uh, again, I don't remember who said this, but they said something along. It was it was written about borders, I think, and they said that. Change happens really slowly, and then all of a sudden happens really suddenly, right? So you're 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 going along, you're going along, and all of a sudden, boom! Like the whole floor falls out from under you. Um, and I think we're going to see some of that. Um, but when it comes to the rapid pace of change, I think we are seeing some elements of the future of education being born right now outside of the formal world of education. If you look at where a lot of the political attention is going, if you look at where a lot of the rhetoric and, and money is going, it's going to efforts like uh, innovative charter school networks. It's going to places like New Leaders for New Schools and Teach for America. It's going for a lot of old online entities that say that they're creating self-paced learning opportunities outside of the formal institutions and so on. And the language that gets used about those, right, about online learning, about alternative credentialing and so on, is the same kind of language that Christensen talks about, where he says that, you know, the major established players look at those outside efforts and say, oh, they're not good enough. Right? We have concerns about their quality. They're serving niche populations and so on. And meanwhile, over time, they work out their model and they make it better and they, and they fix it. You know, online learning, for example, is a lot better than it was a decade ago. And I think what's happening here is we're seeing the birth of some new major elements of, of, of schooling and education growing right beside us. And most of the major entities are engaging in sort of classic behavior that Christensen des describes. So, uh, we're also going through, and I, you've talked about this, a change in narratives uh, uh, about education. Can we actually change narratives just by wanting to change them, or are change narratives the result of changes that take place? 
you know, for example, in Finland, uh, I've struggled with understanding how did they change their narrative around education. And we had a sort of a brilliant article this week about the fact that they they really wanted to create equity in education, and that ended up resulting in what we now consider to be these um, sort of very positive practices. Uh, here in Utah, they have an immersive language program, and in order to um, to do immersive language as well, you have to teach very uh, participatively. Um, and so the pedagogy or the narrative seems to change in response to the program. Um, have you thought about sort of the changing educational narrative and, and how we help make that, how we help encourage that change? And, and can we even do so? Um, I have to a certain point. You know, Douglas Reeves talks a lot about the question of does belief drive action or does action drive belief? Um, and I think what we find in a lot of cases is that if you wait for everybody to buy in before you start moving, before you start acting, you're going to wait a long time, right? And what often happens is that you ask us to immerse people into experiences, and then they see the value in it and start to participate in it, and it actually changes their belief system. So a couple of notable examples of that. Uh, one would be professional learning communities in schools, right? We had a lot of teachers who were very skeptical about professional learning communities on the front end, and then once they got immersed in them, and, and, and hopefully in, in good, positive ways, right? And we kill that when you do it negatively. But when they were put into good, positive implementations of professional learning communities, they understand then that um, the power, because they start to live it, and their beliefs literally change. I think another classic example of this, of course, is desegregation in the United States, right? You know, within just a generation or generation and a half, the belief systems around, you know, segregation and desegregation in the U.S. changed dramatically. But that had to be forced upon the American public. They never would have bought in up front. And so I think a lot of us are sort of leaning on the side of, yeah, you want to get as much buy-in as you can, but in many of these instances, action is going to have to drive belief. You're just going to have to go a little bit and do the best you can to make it a positive experience and then watch beliefs change um, as a consequence. So what kind of changes are you seeing in the roles of students and teachers? Um, I, I wish I saw more um, student power, but I'm not seeing much of that yet. Um, I think we have across the globe maybe a thousand schools or so, you know, that are really oriented towards student choice and voice and direction and ownership of their own learning. That's probably low. That's probably more than that. You know, when I think about the schools in the United States, for example, that are really student-centered, as I always call it, you know, there are problem-based learning schools or places like maybe more like a Waldorf or a Montessori sort of model where students have much more ownership of the direction and content and substance of their learning. Uh, we don't have that many places yet. And then in most traditional school settings, you know, it's still very teacher-dominated, still very system-dominated. We're loosening up the reins a little bit and trying to give kids more choice, but it's still within a very constrained system. So I would like to say that these these new technologies that are giving kids incredible learning power outside of our formal form institutions are giving them the same kind of power in institutions, but so far I don't think we've seen enough of that to really stop bragging about. If you look at the examples you gave of kind of innovations in education, many of which are commercially driven, uh, do you, on the whole do you feel like they're helping to um, facilitate those changes or are they solidifying sort of the current 
models for test-driven education? I think a lot of corporations are responding to very current policy demands. You know, they're responding to what they're hearing from policymakers. They're responding to which way they think the wind is blowing. I think they're responding to what schools are asking them for, perhaps in response to those policymakers. So we see a lot of corporate educational initiatives that are aimed at reinforcing sort of the, the classic system that we've always had, you know, with additional assessments and, and teacher dominant dominated learning and emphasis on the lower end of Bloom's taxonomy and so on because that's what everybody's asking them for. Um, and so other than a few smaller companies perhaps that are really trying to reinvent the way we think about things and trying to survive in a very complicated landscape which is dominated by some very large companies that you know wield their power like a big stick. Uh, we're not seeing much on that end. So until we send different kinds of messages and narratives to those corporations um, and say this is what we want from you instead, they're going to give us what we want. I mean, corporations essentially follow the dollar and they follow the policy. So if there are some of us who are interested in seeing the technology provide a change to education, to, you know, to open the door to things that haven't been done and, and maybe create new things, how much of those solutions uh, are you encouraging people to work on locally and how much are larger policy levels? I think you can do a lot locally. I think you just have to have the bravery to do it. I had a really nice conversation with John Carver, who's the superintendent of the Van Meter Schools here in Iowa. And Van Meter is a tiny district to the west of Des Moines. Um, and, you know, John is a very forward thinker. And, you know, he sort of shared this story with me in the conversation. He was just being recognized by the, uh, the director of the State Department of Education for something that he had done in the district, which was one of our very earliest leaders in one-to-one, -one, in virtual reality, and trying to give, you know, more of a student-centered learning experience and so on. And he said that, you know, for the past five years, they've been telling him, no, don't do this, no, don't do this, no, don't do this. And finally, they just gave up and decided to just honor him for his work. Um, so, you know, it's that classic sort of, uh, do it first and ask permission later, and I, I, we just don't have that many leaders who are brave enough to do that. They know what they need to do to a certain extent. They know that they need to be doing so many things that many of us advocate for, but they're not brave enough to step up against the system and at least start making some of those changes locally and then push against the system and say, look, come in here and see what we're doing. It's good stuff. You know, quit hassling us. Start thinking about education differently. John took some of his students to the state legislature to show what they were doing, and they were so blown away that one of the legislators said at the end of the time, said, how do we get out of your way, right? Now, that turned out to be more rhetoric and action, of course, but at least, you know, there was some recognition there that good stuff was happening. So we need more bravery by our leaders. So you do discuss the use of social media by administrators for very practical purposes, communication within the existing structure. D does that practice lead them to have a better understanding of the technology and then to be more open to changes on uh, in a classroom level, at a classroom level? Um, I think it can. I think one of the things we have to recognize about our school leaders is, is as much as, you know, I like to poke at them and prod them and kick them in the rear to get moving, is that they're in the same boat as every other educator and every other policymaker, which is they just don't know a lot about this stuff, most of them. And so they need training and help and support uh, just as much as their teachers do. Um, and the challenge, of course, is that they're the ones who are formally responsible for the system. And so the system isn't going to change until, you know, they get better helps and supports. Um, 
which is why we always say at my center castle that if the leader doesn't get it, it doesn't happen. So I think, you know, it's very hard for leaders who are making policy about social media and, and, and other learning technologies um, to really understand the implications of what their decisions mean, to understand what the capabilities and affordances that the technologies might bring to students. Uh, if they're their knowledge and understanding of how those tools work is so low that they're essentially making policy in ignorance. So I think that when you can expose school leaders, principals and superintendents and other people in formal decision-making roles to tools in a way that works for them, right, then again it's this idea of the action driving belief. They start to see the power of social media, they see how it informs themselves personally, and they start to see, just like we did over the last, you know, three or four years, that Facebook wasn't the evil thing that it, you know, we thought it was. It's just another way to communicate. And, you know, that rhetoric around Facebook at a societal level died way down as more people got into it and realized what it was. As long as it was the faceless something else, you know, it was easy to demonize it. But when we're in it too and we're communicating with family and friends, oh, well, this is not so bad. Let's think about this now. And I think the same thing happens, you know, when you immerse school leaders in social media. That once they start to see what it is, how it works, what the power might be there, they think very differently about enabling opportunities for students and staff. So do you have any good examples of a district leader or a leader who has sort of been willing to take the heat and transform the local educational culture? And are there any lessons for us in how they've done that? Um, it's hard often to tell from, from an outside perspective just how much heat you have inside, right? I and mean, I think we can point to innovative leaders in every state who are doing good things in their schools you know, to sort of transform systems, to, you know, get technology in there in ways that are meaningful and powerful, to uh, have student work be focused more on higher level thinking rather than lower level thinking and so on. You know, I think about people like Eric Schenninger in, in New Jersey who's starting to turn some things around. I could point you to a number of different superintendents in Iowa, like Jeff Dix up in New Fonda, um, John Carver, who I mentioned before, Todd Abramson, who just moved from Sydney to Grinnell, you know, folks like Pam Moran, who's in our discretionary right now. You know, I don't know how much heat she faced locally as she tried to move the system. Um, but I think we have folks like that all over the place who are doing good stuff. They just still constitute, you know, 1% or less of our overall superintendents, you know, our overall principals that are doing these kind of things. And we just need to keep scaling up. You know, I, I, I have stories shared with me on a fairly regular basis for every day or two from somebody who says, we're trying to make these changes in our system, we're moving forward, trying to educate community members, I'm trying to educate staff, it's a tough slog, but I'm up for the challenge, we're going to make this happen, Scott, you'd be proud of us. You know, and so that gives me those glimmers of hope to keep my own work moving along. Um, and I think, you know, like any other change, people are all over the place in terms of a continuum. So, um, you know, a lot of people are moving in the right direction or trying to move in the right direction, but it's early days. And, you know, you're not going to hold everybody up and say they've got it all solved yet. So where are innovative uh, district school leaders gathering? Do, do you have a place at Castle where they gather virtually? Are there? I know there are some networks. Are there places where they really can get support from each other if they are looking to make these changes? Um, you know, I don't really know how you'd even identify the schools in the first place and say these are the schools that have their act together enough to, you know, we put some kind of stamp on them and say these are the innovative ones that we want to then start connecting. Um, 
because schools that are doing great in one area may be struggling in another and so on. We at Castle have not really created that kind of gathering place, virtual or otherwise, uh, in a formal sense. I think a lot of folks are connecting informally, right, you know, through Twitter and blog comments and, and, and so on. We run into each other at conferences. Um, we have not set up anything formally at Castle. I know that the state and national school leadership associations aren't really doing anything like that. Um, you know, many of those are just starting to wake up to the need to even have technology as a topic at conference sessions um, in a substantive way. Um, so, unfortunately, I would say right now, no, and that's probably something we should do a better job of. Interesting. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit, if we could, about social media. Uh, some years ago, uh, I wrote a piece for Britannica on Web 2.0 becoming an integral part of K-12 education, and Dan, Dan Willingham wrote the rebuttal, and you were quoted in the rebuttal. So in the, in the four or five years since then, uh, has it turned out to be true? Are, are we going to see Web 2.0 technologies as integral to education, or was Dan right that you were way off base? Um, it's interesting that he quoted me in the rebuttal because Dan and I don't agree on that front. <laughs> um, um, actually, I should, I, I, I'm going to say, I, I need to clarify for you. He quoted you but was using you as an example of somebody who wasn't being realistic. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Absolutely. Of course we are. I mean, if we think that social media is going to somehow slow down or reduce its presence in our lives, we're fooling ourselves. We're only going to have more so, right? I mean, people are inherently social. And all that social media does, it gives us new and, and more powerful ways to connect with each other you know, in, in ways that we've never been able to do before. We're able to reduce issues of time, issues of geography, and, and other concerns. And so social media is not going to go away anytime soon. Um, and it's only going to become more ever-present in our lives. That's going to inevitably filter into schools. You know, schools are not going to continue to exist in bubbles immune from that. They may be slow to catch up, but they're not going to never catch up. So he's going to lose that argument in the long run. Okay, so what about video games or gaming in education? Uh, what's, the, what's the story there? Uh, again, early days. Um, I think that a lot of people are recognizing that video games and simulations and the artificial intelligence engines that drive them have a lot of power. Uh, we're seeing simulations explode in corporate training because uh, corporations are recognizing that what simulations allow us to do is to immerse people into fairly real contexts where we can see not just what people know, but what can they do with what they know. How can they apply that knowledge in the kind of settings that we want them to apply. And they're not perfect. They're not perfectly realistic, but they're better than some kind of proxy measure like a paper and pencil test or an interview. Um, we can actually, you know, you can engage in some decision-making, react environmental factors, and so on. So, you know, you know, we can have somebody go through their frontline soldier in Afghanistan training in a simulator first before we send them out. Uh, we can have the oil rig, or oil rig worker work through different scenarios before we send you know, that person out to the middle of the ocean to cause you know, potential trouble and so on. Um, so I think when we're looking at gaming and education and simulations, uh, it's very early days. And one of the reasons is that even though we have some really interesting stuff happening, uh, it's not widely available. I, um, somebody mentioned Kurt Squires uh, down in the chat room. Uh, just a couple months ago, I got to talk with uh, one of Kurt's graduate students, uh, Sean. And I said, Sean, you know, the work that you guys are doing at UW-Madison is fantastic. 
but nobody can get access to it. It's always pilots and it's a research study and then it disappears and you know people can sort of see from the outside a little bit of what you're doing, but you know your average educator might be really interested in that science or social studies or you know whatever simulation or game-like environment you're creating and experimenting with. You know nobody ever gets to get their hands on it and try it with kids and so on. Um, and we, you know, we can say the same things to the video game corporations, the people who are making games and simulations. Um, and what they'll all tell you is that the money is just not in there yet. So um, it's going to be a while before we see these things in our day-to-day -day school environments. I'm excited about the possibilities. You know, when I talk to educators, I say, you know, like right now, if we want the kids to know about ancient Egypt, you know, they read a couple pages in the textbook, and there's some pictures, and you know, there's one of hieroglyphics always, and there's a map of the Nile River. And, um, and I said, but you know, we now have the ability right now to literally simulate ancient Egypt. What does it look like? You know, how does it respond? Um, and you could put somebody in there. And that environment was created maybe with input from our best Egyptian historians. And then you could be the pharaoh, you could be the slave, you could be the merchant, you could be the farmer. We can give you authentic tasks within the context of ancient Egypt to the extent that we need you to know facts and, and, and factual material. You know, we can embed that as part of playing the game, you know, money systems and neighbors and trade and war and, you know, agriculture and whatever. And, you know, does anybody want to bet against that being a more powerful learning experience than the textbook experience? And nobody ever does, of course. But we don't have access to those kind of environments. We have the ability to create them right now. But we don't have access to them because the money's not there and or the wheel's not there. You know, I've watched several social technologies sort of really be dramatically adopted by educators. And in almost every case, the technology wasn't developed for the educators, but it met sort of what might be called a more human need. And then educators figured out how to bring it into their educational environment. I wonder if the same might be said for gaming, that these attempts to, to create gaming specifically for schools may be less effective than gaming that's structured and built outside of schools meets much broader needs and is uh, brought in to be applied in a school setting. Um, perhaps, and, and educators have always been very creative about, you know, begging, borrowing, and stealing whatever they need to do whatever they think they need to do in the classroom. Um, and, and, you know, and when you see the literature around gaming and education, a lot of it is co-opting commercial games. We'll take Civilization or SimCity or, you know, something like that and try to get it into the classroom, you know. Um, but we have certain academic goals and learning goals, at least right now, which are more directed than that. Um, and what's commercially available may or may not address the learning outcomes that we want our students to achieve. So I think that's the challenge. Uh, lots of fun on that topic coming up, I'm quite sure. Um, okay, what about data decision, uh, data-driven decision making? So I don't know that much about this topic. It's clearly a specialty of yours. There's a quote on your website, Dr. McLeod has helped numerous school organizations survive and thrive in today's data-driven accountability environment. Haven't we figured out yet that that kind of data-driven accountability wreaks havoc both in schools and in the financial sector? I mean, are, are, aren't there limits and, and uh, are, are we, um, are people understanding of how those numeric goals often get you the opposite of what you want? Um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I cut my teeth as an early professor helping school districts adapt to NCLB and AYP. Um, and to try and do that in ways that were sensitive to the needs of children, but also maybe got us some information that would be useful. I think what we've seen over the last decade 
is that a lot of that has, uh, you know, as predicted early on, um, wreaked havoc, as you said, on educational priorities, learning opportunities for kids, and so on. Um, in theory, data-driven decision-making is value-neutral. Um, you know, it all depends on what kind of data you're collecting. I mean, I don't think anybody would argue against the need for educators to be more informed about how their students are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And this whole idea that we should just be relying on gut intuition um, and hunches and, you know, sort of how did it feel that day. You know, I had a teacher once and I had about almost 100 teachers in a room and I asked them, how do you know when your kids are learning? And some guy in the back said, by the gleam in their eye, I said, really, that's what you're going on? You know, because you don't really know where that gleam is coming from. Um, or what it stands for. And so, you know, I think we want our educators to be more informed than that. But then the question, as, as John said in, in the chat area, is, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So what kinds of data, what kinds of information do we want coming in that we can then figure out that our students are learning what we want? And I think the challenge for many of us, and this is why I sort of stopped doing that sort of data-driven work a few years back, is that I can never get people to move beyond the lower level cognitive stuff. Um, so, you know, some kind of healthy mix of, of data where we're assessing some lower level skills, some higher level skills, we're assessing engagement, we're looking at um, other indicators that students are actually interested in what they're learning and all they wanted to talk about was sort of low level test scores. Um, so I actually have quit doing that work. Uh, almost entirely. You know, I think I did my last presentation on that about three or four years ago uh, in my last workshop working with people because we just could never get people to move beyond sort of the AYP, NCLB, lower end of blooms paradigm where we started looking at other kind of information and other kind of data. Um, so I keep, you know, think, I keep thinking we're going to find some that somebody will kind of be a Deming-like figure in this regard and, and help us to understand that the data can't be divorced from the very human kind of uh, responsibility. And, and I also keep thinking about Finland because clearly they have a very different approach to uh, test taking and assessment. Um, they're kind of one sort of final test at the end of school. But, but I'm sure that's not giving that's not fair to the fact that there has to be assessment that goes that takes place along the way. But I'm thinking that that's very local assessment and not uh, mandated from the top down. Do you know what? Do you, do you know anything about Finland and about how that they how they do this without those big tests? Uh, not too much. I know that they give a lot of power to local schools to do more local assessment and figure, you know, set learning goals with students, figure out when they've met them. I think it's more performance-based and so on. I think one of the things that we always forget, however, when we look at the American context is sort of the origin of NCLB is that in the 80s and 90s, the feds started looking to the states for better results from the money that they were giving them. So the challenge was, and the reason NCLB came about in the first place, is because the feds were saying, we're giving you billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars, and we're seeing very little return from that, right? Your whatever outcomes you can show us as states, you know, they're not doing anything for poor kids, for racial and ethnic minority kids, for students with disabilities, or English language learners, and so on. And so the reason NCLB came is because they said to states in the previous reiteration of ESEA, the um, Elementary and Secondary Education Act, they said, all right, look, in the next few years, we're going to give you one last chance to show us that you're using this money well to um, 
have positive outcomes for school children. And the states couldn't do it. They just kept taking the money and they couldn't show the feds whatever they were looking for. So then they came in and became more draconian about it. And that's when everybody goes, whoa, 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 what just happened? But they had, there actually was, there were many years of run up to that um, ahead of time. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to give the feds more credit than they deserve by any means. But you have to at least recognize the policy context that's surrounded and so be up front. So now what's happened is that over the last decade, we've been telling everybody, all of our parents, all of our community members, all of our educators, all of our policymakers, that data are important, right? And now all of a sudden, just because, you know, we find out that Finland does so well or that some of us in tech advocates want kids to focus on the higher end of blooms and so on, um, you know, we have a whole societal narrative, as we've been talking about, that's going to take a long time to reverse. It's not just going to flip over overnight because we spent the last decade telling them that this stuff was important and they believe this. So I'm going to do one final question and then we'll switch to Q&A here. So if you've got a, a question for Scott, get it ready. If I've missed it in the chat, you're going to be able to raise your hand and ask it with a mic or you can put it in the chat again. Um, Howard Rheingold and Sugata Mitra seem to me to be talking about something very similar. Howard calls it pedagogy, and Sugata Mitra is, uh, I don't know what he calls it, but it, you know, putting the kiosks out in villages in India and the kids teaching themselves. Pedagogy is, I think, basically peer learning. Are, are we going to rethink the role of an instructor, and, and are there times when an instructor is actually less helpful than the, than the students teaching each other or helping each other learn? Is that realistic? Uh, yes, yes and no. Um, yes, we're going to see that students gain more learning power than they've ever had before. Yes, we're going to start rethinking the role of instructor. And at the same time, no, adults are still going to think that children are children, and that they're not autonomous beings, and that they need to be controlled, that they need to be directed, that they need to be supervised, and so on. And that basic adult belief about their own children as whether they're parents or educators or policymakers or whatever, is not going to go away anytime soon. So I know I promised that we'd go to Q&A, but I want to have one final kind of follow-up to that. So there is an adage that institutions perpetuate the very behavior they were created to solve, and, and that the argument would be that they need to have that behavior take place in order to justify their existence. So do we infantilize youth? Are they capable of much more? And, and if that's true, are there good models for releasing that that you've seen that don't depend on that kind of um, adult authority subjection? Uh, yes, we definitely infantilize youth. And I think we definitely um, underserve them in terms of what their capabilities are. One of the reasons I'm really strongly in favor of laptop initiatives, for example, is that when we, when we can get powerful learning tools in the hands of students on a day-to-day -day basis, we see them do much more powerful work than they were able to do in analog environments. Work that sometimes we didn't know they were capable of at all. And I think, you know, Mitra's work and Reingold's work and lots of people's work, right, bears that out. Um, when I think about schooling environments where kids have more power and direction over their learning than they have in the past, uh, I keep turning to the problem-based learning schools, places like expeditionary learning and the big picture schools and, and vision 
and um, you know the new tech network and places like that where they're trying very hard to give students more voice and choice over what they do and give them whatever tools and resources they need to do that. You know, I went to I got to visit one of those problem-based learning or PBL schools in Christchurch, New Zealand this spring, where school students, you know, spent every day directing their own education and the teacher was a facilitator and slid in skills on the side as necessary to help kids move along. It's a very powerful learning environment to see in action. Uh, we just don't have that many of them yet. Okay, so we're going to switch to Q&A. There's a, there's a debate going on about data in the chat that I haven't even been able to fully follow. But while we go to Q&A, I'm going to put the link up to your book. This is the okay. Amazon link. Thanks. So book number one of can, two. Uh, see that. Yeah, oh, yeah, what's the second book? So um, the idea was actually to have a paired set of books. And, and the other one was supposed to come out first, but this one came out first. Um, so. You know, when I work with school leaders, they need help with a couple of things. The main work that they need and the main help that Castle and I provide is we help them on the leadership side of things. How do you think about, you know, leadership of your system? How do you think about, um, how do you facilitate and support staff and students? How do you create different kinds of learning environments? Those are all leadership-oriented behaviors um, and, and mindsets that we want school leaders to have. And that's the bulk of the work that we do with school leaders. Um, and so the second book, which isn't out yet, is really an edited book where we ask people to write about what do school leaders know, need to know about technology leadership issues. So for example, what are the intersections uh, between, you know, technology and classrooms? So when you're an administrator and you go in and you see students and teachers using tech, how do you know if it's any good or not? Um, what are the intersections between data and technology? What do students uh, administrators need to know about using technology for organizational communication. Uh, there's a whole series of topics like that. Um, and then the second book is really this more of a tools book, and that's the one that's out now, and that's the one you have on the screen, which is, okay, so we're trying to focus primarily on the leadership aspect and not so much on just the tools. But we also know you need help with the tools, and so that's what this book was all about, was to tap into sort of the ed tech blogosphere and get some people to really know this stuff, and to ask them to take a leadership lens. You know, most of us take a classroom lens on this most of the time, and we said, all right, take your knowledge of RSS or podcasting or Twitter or whatever and apply it towards school leaders, what do leaders need to know about that tool. Um, and that's really what that book is all about. So the second, the, the other book that I talked about, the one that's not out yet, uh, should be ready by this coming fall uh, under ISTE's uh, print. Um, and then this one came out um, from Josie Bass. So, and there's meant to be bookends, oh, right? So leadership and tools both. Okay, so we are going to shift to Q&A now. If you have a question, uh, Dr. J, if you raised your hand to take the mic, I'm going to give you the microphone, although I show a slowdown in your audio. Um, but you have mic permissions on. You can turn your mic on by clicking the talk button at the top left of your screen. Uh, Pam, Pam asked, what's the fifth? Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You mean Dr. J, go ahead? Go ahead, Dr. J. Or Pam. No, you. Go ahead, Dr. So J. I don't know who you is. I thought that was Dr. J talking. Is it Dr. J? So Dr. J, if you're still there, click that microphone, that talk button, and we'll let you ask the question. Okay. No, you. So I don't know who you is. Well, um, I registered at uh, futureofeducation.com, so um, you could you'll, you'll 
Well, I hope to get to hear me now. Are talking? Is it Dr. J? It is Dr. It's J. It's on the talk button. Uh, let me see. Turn up the volume. Oh, sorry. Maybe it's a delay. There's definitely a delay, but but go ahead and ask your question. If we miss it, just put it put it in the chat, and we'll move on. Let's see. Can you hear me? Yes, I definitely can hear you, but there is a delay. If you don't mind, go ahead and put your question in the chat because I think you're. Um, we're getting a bandwidth delay with you, and I'm going to move on, and then uh, you can come back uh, if the chat doesn't do it. So, Will, I've given you a microphone. If you want to click on the talk button, you can ask your question. Thanks, Steve. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. Hey Scott, so I'm I'm curious as to what extent you think that we need to have some type of conversation that kind of redefines what learning is. It seems to me that we've kind of narrowed the definition down to the point where it's kind of almost useless. Um, and I wonder if you think that uh, part of the whole shift conversation has to really dig into uh, a different kind of definition around you know what we what we think learning is and should be. Yes, absolutely. And what I'm seeing is I'm seeing growing recognition, at least among building and district level leaders and school board members, uh, around a, a conceptualization of learning that focuses much more on student autonomy and higher level thinking skills, and much less on the kind of stuff you measure on bubble tests. Um, now, where they're struggling, of course, is that they're still operating in an environment where lower-level cognitive work is still reinforced by various policy mechanisms, assessment mechanisms, and so on. So I'm seeing a growing recognition by people that when we talk about learning, that we're talking about a lot more student ownership, a lot more student engagement, about a different kinds of learning experiences um, that are more diffuse, that are harder to measure that are more probably ultimately more worthwhile and what we want from kids. And I think we see a lot of people recognizing that, yes, that's desirable. Yes, that's what we want. What they're struggling with is how to get there. Um, now, true, a lot true, of that, those, yeah, go ahead. Do you, see, do you see the Common Core moving in that direction? I mean, is, that, is, there, is there some reason for hope in the way that the Common Core is being articulated and in the way that they're talking about those assessments? Uh, I think the Common Core is a step in that right direction. I think it's not the ultimate destination. I think hardcore folks like you and I will would take a look at the Common Core and say it doesn't go far enough, right? I mean, I want almost every school to be a pure problem-based learning school that student, where student inquiry and learning is self-directed and the teachers facilitate. I'm not going to get that in my lifetime. Um, but is the Common Core better than what we have before? Maybe. Um, a lot of it can depend on what kind of assessments that come out of it. You know, we have these two national consortia in the United States that are working on national level higher order thinking skills assessments. Who knows what those are going to look like? The rhetoric is good around them, but in reality, you know, how are they going to work? How are they going to be implemented? Are we really going to roll them out at a national scale? Are they really going to be viable substitutes for local assessments and teacher judgments and, and community judgments instead? Who knows? So probably not. Um, and again, it takes so long for this system to turn. And meanwhile, you know, the things that are happening on the fringes that you and I would say are, are really good things are never going to be mainstream anytime soon. 
So a question came in through the chat from John B. Question in regards to the U.S. K-12 public schools. Do you think we need to alter our assessment methods before we can experience widespread innovation and learning efficiency? I don't know. You know, uh, this whole national testing scheme is essentially arisen. I mean, it's still state-based, but it's really federally driven. Um, it, it drives a lot of educator rhetoric and belief systems. And whether we want it to or not, whether we want them to be more brave or they want them to understand that focusing on a higher level thinking can actually solidify lower level factual knowledge along the way in better ways than simply focusing on lower level. The bottom line is whether they believe it truly or just using it for cover to um, continue doing what they've always done. Um, you know, it's had a major narrative impact on how we talk about things in schools. And so whether I like it or not, the dominant belief system in most of the educators that I work with, genuine or otherwise, you know, and you can decide how skeptical you are, is that they're constrained by these assessments in that you know, they don't understand and they haven't been taught how to live at higher levels of cognitive work instructionally, instructionally and still have faith that the lower level cognitive outcomes on which they're being assessed will still happen. So if you have a question for Scott, please feel free to raise your hand. I'm trying to keep up with the chat. If I've missed the question that you posted in the chat, please feel free to post it again. You raise your hand by clicking on the third icon over in the participant window, and I'll give you the microphone. Scott, um, I often find myself comparing education to democracy. Um, and we see democracy as a process, but we often see education as an outcome. Is that helpful language to, to sort of rethink education if we think of it as a process? Does that make a difference in terms of where it takes place? Is it locally or nationally driven? Uh, yes, absolutely. And particularly because I think that in this new, extremely complex environment that we now live in, uh, both economically and culturally and, and technologically, we're finding that, you know, as many people have said, that we have to keep relearning in new and different ways. We have to keep upgrading our skill sets. We can't be trained in something coming out of high school or college and then believe that that skill set is going to last us for the next three, four decades until we retire. We're constantly having to reinvent ourselves these days, which is calling for a much greater role for adult learning, for informal learning, and so on. And I think you can have those conversations right now with people and recognize that, you know, we really do need to be learners throughout our entire lifespan. That, that may not have always been the case, other than in small local ways, but now for many of us, our very our very jobs, our very economic survival, uh, is going to depend on how well you are able to to relearn and skill up, uh, sometimes fairly rapidly. So I, I think those conversations are starting to happen right now. So we're going to give the final question here to Ann Flynn, and I've given you the microphone to turn it on. You click on the talk button at the top left. Hi, Ann. So and I can see you have microphone privilege, but I'm not actually hearing anything from you. So there's a talk button below Scott's image. If you click on that, it will turn your microphone on. If you haven't set your microphone up, you may not. It may not be working. In which case, feel free to put a quick note in the chat. Scott, we've yeah, no mic. Oh darn. So feel free to put your note there. While she's doing that, I'm going to do our little closing here because we do like to finish on time as a courtesy to our guests. Coming up uh, next week, Ian Jukes and Mitch Perlstein.
you know, should be really fun sessions. Then Cheryl Nussbaum Beach on the 17th, and Henry Iring on the Innovative University on the 19th. Um, let's see a question from Ann Scott. Thank you so much. That was really a lot of fun. Uh, we, we covered a broad range of topics, and I appreciate your willingness to be uh, so responsive in each area. Yeah, it's my pleasure to participate tonight. I'm also willing to hang out and answer questions after you stop the recording, too, if you want. Um, I feel like we just got started, but yeah, glad to be here. <laughs> okay. So what we'll actually do is, this is the formal close of the show, but we'll leave the recording going. And if you have questions for Scott, you can stick around. Uh, and you can ask them. But if you have made plans to move on, please don't feel awkward about just closing the room out and going. And the recording will be up and uh, available tomorrow on futureofeducation.com. Yeah, there's some virtual applause going. Uh, the, the way you do applause now and collaborate is to go hover over the smiley face and then go down to the applause button. I'm hoping that that gets moved into its own icon at some point. But for now, you need to do that. It's a really terrific con conversation, and uh, Ted says he's going back to read your book. And if you put your question in there, I've missed it because things have flown by. But hopefully, you'll um, you'll post it again, or you'll grab the mic. Oh, you don't have a microphone, so nothing we can do there. Okay, so if you do have a question for Scott, he's going to stick around. Uh, raise your hand using that third icon over in the participant window, and we'll give you a microphone. While we're waiting, Scott, uh, any recommended reading? I know you have a recommended reading tab on your website. Anybody you feel like we we should really be listening to at this time? Well, that tab is so outdated. I need to I need to spend some serious time on my website. Um, pulling up my Kindle here to see what's on my reading list lately. Um, uh, I'm reading a lot more about um, sort of the impact of some of these technologies on higher education. How do we think? How do we rethink ourselves as scholars and as academics? So I'm reading things like the Digital Scholar. Um, let's see what else is in here. Um, uh, I really love the book Hacking Work because I'm tired of being embedded in uh, academic bureaucracies. So just got some inspiration from that book about you know how to retain the mindset of the of of a hacker as a university employee. Um, just trying to think. Um, most of the way through learning futures, which I think is pretty good here. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've done some stuff so fast. Um, I definitely need to do some more book reviews on my blog. So you caught me short here, Steve. Sorry. Well, I've started to do a couple of more interviews on higher ed. Um, the Henry Iring interview is on higher education. If you have recommendations in that area, uh, feel free to forward them to me. I'd be glad to reach out and do a little bit more of that. It feels like that conversation is a valuable one. It looks like we might have some questions. So I'm going to give Jeremy the mic. Jeremy, if you were asking a question, you can click the talk button. That will turn your microphone on. And if, you, if your microphone doesn't turn on, you may need to go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard. In the meantime, I'm going to give Jim the mic. So Jim, you have the microphone privilege as well. So just click on that talk button and see how you do. Uh, no mic as well. Did you want to ask a question, Jim? Or was there a question in the chat that I missed? So Jeremy, please feel free to 
us. Oh, what projects are you working on now, Scott? Um, so uh, many of you know that I just moved to the University of Kentucky. I just finished my first semester there. I'm still living in Iowa. I'm UK's first remote professor. Um, and, and the big impetus for moving to UK, uh, not the UK like overseas, but University of Kentucky UK, um, was that um, there are only about 10 school leadership uh, faculty across the country that really care about technology. 10 might be generous. Um, there's through over 3,000 total, but there are less than two hands worth of people that really care about tech. Uh, UK got four of us at one place. So I have three colleagues, Jason Richardson, Justin Bathin, and John Nash. Um, the four of us are serving as co-directors of CASEL. And really what we've done over this past semester is just sort of get everybody together, figure out where we want to go, allocate various responsibilities to get moving. And um, so we're moving on a variety of different fronts. Um, you know, and some of those are Kentucky-based, and some of those are more national in scope. We started up a project brief series, for example. We just published our first one, uh, our first brief, which is on what the research says about one-to-one, -one, and we've invited other people to join us. Anybody who wants to write for those can just uh, drop me a note, and I'll send you some more detail. Um, we're talking about maybe initiating like a model AUP project where we get some heads together and say, how can we create an AUP that focuses more on empowerment rather than no, no, no. And um, could we then get that out to some school organizations at the state or federal, uh, national level that they could then maybe use as models for districts and schools. Um, and again, if that's something you're interested in, drop me a note. Um, we've got a variety of different research projects going on. We're looking at um, surveying large-scale one-to-one initiatives all across the globe and trying to see what lessons can we learn from those. Um, we just finished a study where we are uh, where we interviewed tech-savvy superintendents from around the country and what lessons we could learn from them and so on. Um, on the teaching front, we're getting our school technology leadership courses back up and running. Uh, I had those at the University of Minnesota a few years back, so we're getting those up at the University of Kentucky and the idea that you'll be able to get a graduate certificate or a master's or a PhD with an emphasis in school technology leadership. Um, and that will be a wholly online program. So if that interests you, drop me a note. So we're operating on all fronts, research, teaching, service and outreach, um, you know, grants, you name it. Seems like we've got a lot going on. Sure sounds like it. So Dr. J, I don't know if you had a question still. Feel free if you would like to, um, to raise your hand again. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to respond to Carolyn's comment here real quick. She said, how can people not care about tech and learning? It's so ubiquitous. Um, it's not near as ubiquitous in formal K-12 environments as we would like, of course, which is why there's still somebody who's advocating for it. Um, I, I, am, I continue to be shocked by the number of people I run into who say something along the lines of, well, I didn't have technology in schools when I was a kid, and I turned out all right. Um, and so that dominant narrative that, you know, this, this idea of narrative that we started the whole conversation with, that dominant narrative around the value of technology and learning uh, still has to be held with a lot of uh, older adults. They still see technology as primarily social and frivolous, not as academically powerful. Scott, I spoke at a conference uh, a month or two ago called DECI. It's the California uh, directors of educational technology at public and private universities. And there were a number of people there I thought were really sort of intriguingly doing interesting things at these schools around uh, technology and pedagogy. Are you tapped into them at all? Is that an introduction you'd like me to make for you? 
I'm not. And you know, I, I, those people are probably in the same crowd as the EduCost crowd, right? I mean, there's some really interesting stuff going on with technology in higher ed. Um, and I just don't live in those spaces for the most part. I think, you know, the interesting thing about that is that when you look at it nationally, there's lots of really cool stuff happening when it comes to technology and post-secondary education. But at any one single university, it seems like they're just little silos here and there. So when I think about all the universities that I worked at, uh, you know, we can point the half a dozen to a dozen faculty that are really doing cool stuff, and the other, you know, many hundreds of them um, are doing the same whole thing. So when you aggregate, you know, six people from this university and ten from that one and three from that one, it looks like there's a lot of stuff going on, but there really isn't. And I just wonder if you just ran into sort of the tech savvy group, like you would at Educause. Interesting. Yeah, well, they certainly were. Um, I just thought maybe they'd be of interest to you. Hey, uh, we've got a couple questions here. Gary says, do you think flipped classrooms in high school are an initiative that something should be implementing, high schools should be implementing? Uh, unlike some of my more hardcore um, ed tech colleagues, um, I, I think there probably is a role for the flipped classroom in K-12 pedagogy just as there is in higher ed. I think, you know, like anything else, it's not a silver bullet. I think it, you know, when you use it well and use it um, for purposes that make sense, uh, it's going to have some value. I think, like anything else, if you overuse it, um, it's going to lose its power and we're just going to get bored of it and so on. There is a little bit of concern um, about, you know, this idea that the flipped classroom is premised on the idea that students have access at home. And we know, of course, that for a certain set of students, uh, large or small, depending on your community, that they just don't. Um, and so if, this, if the success of your teaching and learning processes depend on a student being able to go home and watch something and do something so that they can then come into that face-to-face -face classroom and do uh, deeper, richer work, you know, while you're live, um, those kind of issues are going to have to be addressed. And I kind of think for all the rhetoric and magic that, that, that accompanies the flipped classroom, we haven't thought through all of that yet. There was also a, a sort of an interesting thread in some of the pieces I read about um, whether or not that was just homework in another form. Uh, another question was, how do teacher prep programs both prepare teachers' admins for the current realities of dominant narrative and what we want to see should be the vision for students today? Right. Now that's a great question. And whenever I work with parents, for example, or, or, or teachers, I almost invariably get asked two questions. The first question that I always get asked is, okay, this all sounds great, Scott, but how do we reconcile this with NCLB and AYP? That's a very common question. But the other question that I always get is, what are colleges of ed doing? Um, and I'm sad to say that most of them aren't doing much. Um, I think what happened with colleges of ed was we had this big federal program uh, a while back called PT3, Preparing Tomorrow's Teachers to Use Technology. And the intent of the grant program was to get technology courses into pre-service teacher programs all across the country, right? So a lot of universities and a lot of colleges of ed use those grants to kickstart a technology presence in pre-service teacher education. And now we have instructional faculty, instructional technology faculty who work on those programs and they supposedly are preparing kids, kids, uh, you know, uh, pre-service teachers to go out and you know, teaching classrooms in powerful ways with technology. But what's happened is very much like what happens in a lot of our schools. So, you know, you want to be a social studies teacher, you want to be a science teacher, you do all of your subject area methods courses where you're 
you know, you're learning how to teach science, you're learning how to teach foreign language, whatever, and then you march down the hall or, you know, you go on every Tuesday and Thursday and you take the tech class and it sits separate and apart from the subject area methods courses that you're taking. And of course what we know is that integrating technology into a history course, for example, is going to look very differently than injecting technology into a PE course or injecting into a language course or a science course or a language arts course. Um, you know, you're going to use different kinds of tools, different kinds of mindsets. There's some generic things that might cut across. Um, but the bottom line is the more subject embedded you can get that technology integration and that and the technology learning for pre-service teachers, the better and more powerful they're going to be with students. And that has not happened in almost every single college of ed all across the country. In fact, I don't really know of any colleges of ed where the teacher ed programs or the administrator prep programs, to be honest, um, are doing a good job of integrating technology into the basic preparation process in ways that are subject specific, not just marginal and, and sort of sitting over here down, you know, down the hallway. So Carolyn wants to try and take the mic from her iPad. None of us know if this is going to work. Cool. Says her sound's getting staticky, but I've given you the microphone privileges, Carolyn, so you'll have to see if turning the mic on will work. I'm thinking the sound driver issue is going to stop it from actually happening. Give it a try. There's some sound coming, but I can't make it out. That's <laughs> a valiant try, but Scott, I'm not hearing Kudos you. Kudos for trying. No, just a little echo is what I hear. So I could hear you say, "Okay, Carolyn, it's the volume is down." While we're waiting, uh, we're going to give Ann Flynn the mic and see Ann how you do here. Dr. J, we can't go to Skype with this many people, but usually it uh, this works out well. So we'll see how we do. Are you there, Ann? I actually took Mike away because you had it before. So go ahead and click on that talk button if you'd like and see how it does. And I don't know, Ann, if you ran the Tools Audio Setup Wizard to test your mic. Yeah, Carolyn, we did hear something. We, I could actually make out when you said OK, but uh, it was very soft. And then I'm not hearing anything from you, and so I'm thinking that your mic isn't. Oh, maybe you said before you don't have a mic, but if you wanted to ask a question in the chat, please feel free to. She did say that okay. she didn't have a mic, Steve. So she did say that. Yes. Okay, so Anne, I'm not sure why you raised your hand, but if you wanted to make a comment, please feel free to put it in the chat. Scott, I think we're probably close to wrapping up. Did you have any final thoughts? No, only other than to just reiterate what I said earlier, which is to recognize that leaders have learning needs too. And that um, even though they're in formal positions of authority and need to be doing a much better job with this stuff, they're not going to until we invest in them. Um, and the advantage of investing in leaders, uh, as much as I like classroom teachers, is that the leaders are the ones with all the power and authority. Um, so when you think about resources, you know, who's in charge of time, training, personnel allocation, money, vision, whatever. It's always our formal leaders. It's principals and superintendents, policymakers, et cetera. And, and, and until we start investing in them, 
uh, we're not going to see the kind of changes that we need because they're in charge of the systems, right? When a teacher's light bulb turns on, she affects a classroom or several classrooms full of students. When a superintendent's light bulb turns on, the entire district is positively impacted. So, uh, you know, I'll just continue to encourage everybody to invest in leadership and think about the needs of leaders um, because the, the larger scale changes are not going to happen without them. That's it. That's a good closing statement. Great. Yes. Great way to close. Thank you, Scott, so much. Thanks, Steve. Lots of fun. Bye, everybody. iPad. The one drawback for that iPad was that I was not able to get into the live webinars on it. But now that I put that splash top, which is a virtual desktop, I was out in the living room sitting with my husband, not locked in the back bedroom, and it was great. But the other comment I just wanted to make was on the flipped classroom. Are you with me? Are you still there? Sorry, still here. here. Go ahead. We can hear you. Okay. I am a, uh, we integrate technology into the curriculum. And I am almost 65 years old. I'm the computer technology integration specialist, which is why uh, you can't uh, make comments about older people not being lifelong learners, because we many of us are. But anyway, I have been making videos of some of the uh, tech things, for example, how to uh, do different projects in Excel. The kids come in and do a, a by golly by gum lab that they do in the science classroom. And then they come into the lab, and we actually put the data into Excel, and they learn how to use Excel. It's a pretty much of a first time experience for the kids. Well, I have been using my smart board and my smart recorder to actually record these videos. And I did experiment last time. And with two level one groups. One, I taught it directly while they had to wait for me. The other one, I had to put the headphones on and do it step by step. And the kids loved doing it at their own pace. And they did just as well with it as the kids where I was teaching directly. I'll turn off the talk now just to hear a comment on that. I think that that flipped classroom done well by a teacher, still with teacher direction, is a great idea. So let me chime in on that, and Steve, you probably have some thoughts too. One of the things that I've been trying to get educators to recognize is that they have to stop caring so much on their own backs, right? So for example, the Khan Academy um, and this idea of the flipped classroom, for a lot of teachers, that's very overwhelming because it sounds to them like we're asking them to do yet one more thing. You know, and yet when you take those kind of screencasts and those kinds of online videos and, and whatever you might use to, pro to you know, push some information out in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, kids can make those things themselves now, right? So I was working with a group of educators yesterday up in Northern Iowa, and I said, don't feel like you have to make this stuff yourself all the time, right? Turn to your students and said, all right, you know that unit that we just finished up over the last week and a half? Think about something that you struggled with personally. Now over the next day or two, let's, you know, why don't you make something? Why don't you teach that concept to somebody who will struggle with that next year? Right, and, and teach it in the way that you wish it was taught, so you would have gotten it easier and earlier on. Um, and now what happens when you do that is, of course, the student herself solidifies her own learning on something that she maybe struggled with before. And then you're starting to create this collection of learning and teaching resources um, that are in student voice, not just teacher voice. And you, ha and you build that collection up over time. That's going to be really powerful learning. So it doesn't just have to be the teacher doing this stuff all the time. And I think we need to keep remembering that, that the teacher does not have to be the sole creator or finder and disseminator of learning resources that we should put our kids to work to. One of my favorite stories in that regard, Scott, is 
It's one of the Texas universities and their language program. And they have the upper level class, upper level students, or create all of the material for the lower level students. And, you know, the brilliance of that is just so self-evident. You know, both the upper level students learn as they're doing so, and the lower level students have such an incentive to participate and watch because it's people they know who are actually speaking that language somewhere. Yeah, full, full concurrence here. Okay, I think, <clears throat> I think we're done. Sounds good. Let's call it a night. Thanks okay. so much, Scott. Thanks, Steve. I hope I get to see you soon. Me too. We'll look forward Thanks. to it. Take care. Thanks for the time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Good night.